Okay, welcome back, special edition Thursday. Thanks for joining. I'm your host for discussions on Winwood Radio. Okay, this is Thursday. Check. This is 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard. Check. This is not my regular hour. If you're listening and surprised to catch me, it's because we've got a very special guest. Yesterday, I hosted Ellen Brown of the Public Banking Institute. It just so happens, if you didn't catch that episode, please go back. Uh, I think there were some technical difficulties on the website. Please go back and do so. IanTrotier.com. That's I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R.com slash radio. Just go .com's fine. Uh, click on the radio uh, tab. And that brings you back to all of my previous uh, archived, archived episodes. Ellen's episode is up. It's streaming on SoundCloud, on MixCloud, uh, and shortly will be up on YouTube. It just so happens that she's a former candidate for treasurer in the state of California. Undergraduate degree from Cal Berkeley. Graduate JD from UCLA. As she was studying alternative medicine, and she talks in that episode about a fellow that she helped that was from Louisiana was being threatened and pressured, and so he went down to Mexico to practice. He was helping and presumptively curing, but certainly helping folks with his alternative approach who had cancer. She stepped in as he was extradited back to Louisiana to help him out. Ellen Brown. From there, she realized there was something awry in the banking system. She set forth to correct it. She now has the Public Banking Institute appealing to such people as the current John Chang, I think is his name, treasurer for the state of California, and also the recent, recently elected governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy. She also has the attention of the city of Los Angeles, one of the largest and certainly wealthiest cities around the world. So, among others, but those three are major power movers that are interested in the public banking platform. So I urge you to go back and listen to the discussion of yesterday with Ellen as she enlightens listeners and those that are tuned to understanding her approach to North Dakota. And in my notes, I actually have something very interesting about North Dakota. 
If I can find it, I'll bring it up later because it actually weaves in perfectly with our guest of today. And that's a wonderful interlude. As today, we will bring on Stephen Kinzer. Kinzer spent the most of his 20-year career as a writer and journalist at the New York Times. He was a foreign correspondent to Central America. His current book, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire, is receiving great reviews and certainly has my interest. Based in Miami, there's a large Cuban population here. And as I go about my days, I can't help but to be sympathetic towards a peoples and a culture that has so much value to civilization. As a whole, we are a civilization. Whether groups of us are or aren't, that's debatable. But we're a human race. So I'd like to think that we as a human race can be one civilization. Each of our ethnicities and cultures bring different elements to that. I know that can't be supported any by any uh, dictionary. It means for what civilization is. But I'd like to think that way. And so as I see the music, the food, the dancing that this culture has brought to Miami, which I feel should be supported more. It doesn't flourish much. But, but, but the aspect is that it was suppressed because many of these, well, all, well, I would assume all, but that's probably not entirely accurate. But certainly the early Cuban refugees that arrived in Miami understand the value behind the liberties and freedoms and justices that we receive under the U.S. Constitution. My heart goes out because they were overthrown. A flourishing, wonderful, vibrant country and economy was overthrown by a disastrous dictator in Fidel Castro. So an island that's probably within 200 miles of where I sit right now um, lost some wonderful families and wonderful talents. We'll see what Stephen brings to the table today and what he'll discuss with us. But The True Flag, his current book, is a story of Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and again, the birth of of the American empire. He, I, I know a little bit about the flavor that he writes from, and it's a wonderful commentary. The nexus of what he, of what he brings is summed up in a Carl Schurz, U.S. Senator, 1899, speech delivered at the University of Chicago. Okay, and you know I follow different roads. Now, let me just tell you this. 
And you can make your own discoveries and make your own decisions and, and, and conclusions. But the University of Chicago is a very major medical institution. They have a great medical program. It was set up, that school, the University of Chicago, was funded by the Rockefeller founded, uh, family. Okay, I come from San Francisco and a uh, major university there, Stanford University. Uh, he made his money in uh, railroads. Uh, J.D. Rockefeller made his money in uh, oil. Okay, just throwing that out there, something you can consider. Uh, and I'm not, I can give you, what you, I can give you any kind of tune to what you might be considering. But let me now get into Carl Schurz and his quote. Let us never cease to invoke the good sense, the honesty, and the patriotic pride of the people. Let us raise high the flag of our country, not as an emblem of reckless adventure and greedy conquest, of betrayed professions and broken pledges, of criminal aggression and arbitrary rule over subject populations, but the old, the true flag. Let me pause. Ask yourself, as an American, if you are an American, as a, as a, human, a member of the human race, what is your true flag? Peace, happiness, love of all? So what's that true flag that founded the start of this great country, the United States of America? Continuing the quote, the flag of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, the flag of the government of for and by the people, the flag of national faith held sacred and of national honor unsullied, the flag of human rights and of good example to all nations, good example to all nations of human rights, the flag of true civilization, peace and goodwill to all men, under it let us stand to the last, whatever betide. That paragraph, that speech was delivered now well over 100 years ago. Yet it still pertains to our time, if not more so. It couldn't be more accurate, and it couldn't pertain more to our time. Trump, Clinton, Obama, Bush. <laughs> the first thought that comes to my mind is reckless abandon, recklessness, reckless abandon of the true flag, reckless abandonment of the values, the human right, the values, the core of what this country was founded upon. Just my opinion. One of Stephen's past work, the brothers, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, and the end of the title of this, of this book might surprise you. And their secret world war. Mm. That's an interesting title to a book. It's quoted by the Wall Street Journal as being fluently written, ingeniously researched, and a thrillerish work of popular history. Now, remember, 
Stephen gave 20 years of his life to the New York Times. And he'll be on with us shortly to talk about his newest book, The True Flag. Next week is a wonderful topic. Now, I say next week, but yes, next week. Um, this week, you received two discussions from me. And I thank you for uh, tuning in. And I urge you to please, if you like what I talk about, if you like my substance, please share with a friend. Don't be shy. Let other people know what I'm doing. Support me if you want. Do whatever you like. But I strive to find topics that are squashed by the mainstream media and build them up. Smash. Struggle for Miami's affordable and sustainable housing. So we bring it local next week. Adrian uh, Madriz is bent on holding slumlords accountable. This should echo everywhere, shouldn't it? Okay, so he'll join us next week on discussions. Following that, we're fortunate to welcome April Lejeune. Uh, she runs uh, her own uh, political show out of Colorado, I believe it is. She has roots in Kansas City. And we'll follow that up at the end of the month with, it's actually March 21st, Kevin Shipp. He is a former CIA agent. He's known as a, quote, whistleblower. And uh, kind of along the lines of John Kiriakou, who's been on my program now twice. Hey, if there's something wrong in your government, if there's corruption, just like Senator Chris McDaniel out of Mississippi, previous guest on my program, if there is something awry, folks, whether it's your local, your local level, your county, your state, national level, try to fix it. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trotchier. You can follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. That's I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Both handles. I want to briefly thank uh, the following uh, for their contributions. Um, Johnson. Let me get his his name correctly. Pronounce uh, uh, the last name uh, correctly. Johnson... Sejulis. Sejulis. Uh, he is recently joined uh, the show as uh, a, a talented video editor. Okay, so I want to uh, thank him for uh, his contributions. I also want to thank Wise Food Company. You can find them on my website. But uh, if you don't have a food supply that could carry you in an event of a hurricane... Or an earthquake, you might check out Wise Food Supply and also Australia Insurance. Okay, um, these are people that have supported me, and I want to uh, want to thank them. So, cutting to a break, I will return with Stephen Kinzer to talk about his newest book, The True Flag. Thanks for joining Winwood Radio.
Okay, we are back, and we are joined by Stephen Kinzer, who's online. Stephen, are you with us? I'm with you indeed, mind, body, and spirit. <laughs> Fantastic. Stephen is a former New York Times correspondent. He spent uh, more than a couple decades, I'd assume, uh, diving into issues of Central America, which is uh, most certainly pertinent to a lot of the inhabitants down here in South Florida. Um, Stephen joins us to talk about his newest book, The True Flag, a Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain story, and uh, the, uh, the the rise of uh, the birth of a uh, an American empire. Uh, Stephen, what, uh, what drove you to write that book, and, and what can you tell us about it? All of my books are voyages of discovery. I'm always looking for some story that was very important and really shaped the world and the United States, but that for whatever reason we have forgotten. It's fallen out of our history books. So this book is recovering one of those very important but more or less lost historical episodes. And it happened right around the turn of the last century, so 1898 to 1900 in that period. This was the time when the United States decided that it wanted to burst beyond North America and become a overseas and ultimately global power. But what I had not realized when I learned about this period is that we didn't make this choice automatically. It wasn't just the logical next step. In fact, the entire United States was caught up in an enormous debate over whether this was a good thing, mm -hmm. whether the United States would be uh, benefiting from trying to begin taking colonies overseas and projecting its power violently into the affairs of other countries, or... Uh, would that actually just bring new troubles on us, and should we not now concentrate on developing our own country? So every major political and intellectual figure in America took part in this debate. It had a climax in a long 32-day debate in the United States Senate. So all of this is the background for this great story, and the two characters who symbolize these different points of view are these marvelous characters, Teddy Roosevelt and Mark Twain. So uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, was a great imperialist. He believed that um, poor people and non-white people could not rule themselves and that Americans had to come and rule them. Mark Twain hated this idea. Uh, he wanted the United States to support independence for people in other countries. And although they understood each other's popularity, so they didn't attack each other in public, uh, Twain and Roosevelt actually detested each other, as we know from their private statements and their writings. So uh, Twain said that Roosevelt was clearly insane and <laughs> the worst disaster to befall our country since the Civil War. And Teddy Roosevelt returned the compliment by saying he would like to skin Mark Twain alive. <laughs> and the subject of this debate that brought them to these extremes was this question of whether the United States should begin projecting its power abroad. It's still the central question of our foreign policy. 
<laughs> yeah, well, so I want to, um, I had no idea that Samuel Clemens, who uses the uh, pseudonym Mark Twain, uh, had any beef with Roosevelt, and I certainly didn't know uh, that even Theodore Roosevelt had enemies within the, within the U.S. Senate. But this is an interesting quote um, from Mark Twain, and it's written in 1901 for the North American Review, reprinted as a pamphlet by the Anti-Imperialist League. And so that was a big issue at the time that maybe you want to talk about. But Twain is quoted as saying, And as for a flag for the Philippine province, it is easily managed. We can have a special one. Our states do it. We can have just our usual flag with the white stripes painted black and the stars replaced. And this is what blows my mind. Why would he say this? Maybe you can you can chime in on this. By the skull and crossbones. <laughs> it shows you the uh, bitterness with which Mark Twain attacked the imperial idea. So I, I said earlier that my books are voyages of discovery. Uh, my biggest discovery in this book is that this debate never happened. And that's the center of the book. But uh, my next biggest discovery has to do with Mark Twain. So perhaps like you, I grew up with what I now realize is a partial or distorted mm. view of Mark Twain. I always thought of him as Mr. Nice Guy. Everybody yeah. loves him. He's like your gentle grandfather, slightly <laughs> dotty, but full of wonderful, funny stories. But actually, this isn't true. Mark Twain was a vituperative, bitter, outspoken anti-imperialist, as you just said by uh, that quote saying yeah. that he wants to replace the stars in the American flag with skull and crossbones. So it's interesting to me that most of the quotes that are in my book about, that Mark Twain wrote during this period are absent from biographies and uh, anthologies. This part of Mark Twain's career seems to be kind of uh, whitewashed or it's faded away. It's uh, not taken advantage of. So I was happy to be able to, uh, to rescue that. Twain was outraged at the American decision uh, to seize the Philippines. So we helped, uh, we destroyed the Spanish fleet in the harbor of Manila in 1898. Right. And uh, Twain thought this was great because we had liberated the Filipinos from Spain. But then we decided instead of letting the Philippines become independent, we would take them. And we made the Philippines a province that produced uh, terrible, uh, savage slaughter in the Philippines, a major war between the U.S. Marines and Filipinos. That left about 200,000 Filipinos dead. It's a war that most Americans have forgotten about, but uh, Filipinos, needless to say, have not. And in any case, uh, Mark Twain was outraged at this, and he thought it was a betrayal of the Filipino people. Whereas Teddy Roosevelt said that he didn't believe the Filipinos could possibly rule themselves. And the idea of allowing them to become independent was absurd. So this was one of the bases of disagreements between uh, those two. So Twain condemned all efforts by Western nations to carve up the non-Western world, and I'm, this is a quote. He wrote of the Boxer Rebellion against Europeans and Americans in China, he declared, quote, my sympathies are with the Chinese. They have been villainously dealt with by the serpentered, if I pronounce that word, thieves of Europe. And I ha hope they will drive all of the foreigners out and keep them out of 
out of out for good. So not only is it the Philippines, but regionally. And a past guest I've had on my program, uh, Stephen, is Alfred McCoy. And uh, Alfred, I don't know if you're familiar with who, who he is, but he, he's got sure. his PhD from Yale. And he got a knock on his door after getting back from Southeast Asia and collecting uh, collecting what you know his his research and his thesis for his doctorate. And the knock is from the CIA. And they say they say Alfred, you, you hand over your hand over your your your, your papers. Uh, you, you can't publish this. So he took him to court, and you know. So what he's what he's what he's getting into is certainly the opium trade. But I don't know if you have any comments in regards to that. And then also, hey, you're you're knocking on China's door. If you're in the Philippines, you're knocking you know is burgeoning empire. You're knocking on the Chinese door. You're absolutely right. So. Uh... I've gone through the full debate uh, in the U.S. Senate that talks about this question of why we would need the Philippines. And one of the big reasons is it's going to open up the China market to us. So the sequence of events that led to the debate was this. Essentially, we got involved in the Spanish-American War because we were angry at the way the Spanish were treating people in Cuba. Okay. We were outraged by articles that William Randolph Hearst and others published to try to whip up circulation in New York. Yellow Journal. Then, in order to prevent the Spanish fleet from attacking the U.S. mainland in, uh, in revenge yeah. for us being at war with them, uh, we sent Admiral Dewey to the Philippines to uh, destroy the Spanish fleet, which happened to be there at that time. Then we had this sudden moment, what are we doing in the Philippines? The Americans had no idea even where the Philippines was, and we didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Finally, it was decided we should take it as a colony. And that's what started this enormous debate. A treaty was imposed on Spain by which we would take the Philippines, and the U.S. Senate had to ratify this treaty. That was the source in the beginning for this 32-day debate where you really see for the first time all the great themes of American foreign policy. This is the mother of all debate in American foreign policy. All the themes that we debated when we decided whether or not we should be involved in Vietnam or in Nicaragua or yeah. in Iraq all come up in this debate first. Uh, the only difference is that the senators were so much more articulate then. They yeah. were so brilliant uh, speakers, and right. uh, their speeches are full of classical references to Pliny the Elder and Roman statesmen, so that's impressive to read that. But the substance of the issues and the questions facing America and how we deal with the rest of the world have not changed in these 120 years, and that's one of the things that made the research for this book so interesting. So in your 20 years at the New York Times... Uh, you you dived into Central American culture, politics. What do you take away from that after 20 years? Central America is an example, of perhaps the most vivid example in the world, of a place where political and social development was repeatedly stifled because the United States felt threatened by it. Uh, right after the Spanish-American War, this period we were talking about, so right around 1900 and from then on, the United States essentially decided that the Caribbean would be an American lake. 
and that all countries that had any shoreline lapped by the Caribbean uh, sh should be submissive to the United States. This view intensified after the opening of the Panama Canal. Every time a government in Central America tried to assert independence, uh, the United States saw that, sometimes correctly, as an attempt to break away from the American sphere of influence. And we didn't tolerate that. So our desire to maintain our geopolitical position in the Caribbean basin uh, was something that we considered more important than promoting just social or economic structures inside those countries. Many times nationalist movements emerged in Central America uh, that the United States saw as threatening, and therefore we intervened to crush them. Uh, this has had the effect of retarding in the political and social development in Central America, and it's a cycle that keeps repeating uh, in more or less intensity. So you've got, and I'll repeat this quote, because you've got a great quote, the effects of U.S. intervention in Latin America have been overwhelmingly negative. They have had the effect of reinforcing brutal and unjust social systems and crushing people who are fighting for what we would actually call American values. In many cases, if you take Chile, and this is your quote, Chile, Guatemala, or Honduras, for example, we actually overthrew governments that had principles similar to ours and replaced those democratic, quasi-democratic, or nationalist leaders with people who detest everything the United States stands for. So it's almost like a catch-22. Have we gone into these... A previous guest I've had on the program is John Perkins. He was contracted by the CAA. And, you know, have, we, have we kind of gone into these countries? And, and I'll just throw this out there and see what, see what you think. Yeah, have we gone in maybe and done some of the dirty work of other you know, people that also speak a language that we shared mutually, that, but they, really for, for kind of their special interests, but not necessarily for what, you know, we stand for, the true flag of this country. I think the Americans uh, were pretty easy to read uh, by, by the leaders of Central America and many Caribbean countries. They looked at American leaders pretty early on and realized that if they just said they were anti-communist, uh, and if they threw in jail every communist leader, and if they could, that they could then yeah. name every person who was against them, every labor organizer, every journalist, yeah. critic, as a communist, arrest them all, and then the United States uh, would be happy. We would, uh, the government would support the United States in foreign policy, and in exchange... Uh, the U.S. government would allow the client regime to do whatever it wanted to keep itself in power at home. In many cases, these kinds of regimes led to rebellions from inside the country, and the United States had to send troops to uh, crush those rebellions. That has been a principal theme of Central American and Caribbean history for more than a hundred years, and uh, has decisively shaped the history of that region. Can we say that William, and I want you to talk a little bit about um, the, 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 the USS Maine in Havana, in Cuba, and it seems that 
uh, maybe William Randolph Hearst, uh, and, and of course this is associated to yellow journalism. I I, I heard a recent uh, discussion of yours uh, there at uh, is it the Watson Institute, uh, Brown University. Um, yes. And you spoke about how the Navy, it took 70 years for the Navy, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but it took 70 years for the Navy to say, hey, look, the, the, the USS Maine wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't, wasn't bombed, or, or I'm not sure what the report, initial report was by the Hearst publication, um, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a spark on board that caused uh, you know, the, 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 the USS Maine to, uh, to sink. Is, is this accurate? It's a fascinating story. It shows you how uh, events can be manipulated and uh, used to uh, rouse whole nations to outrage. So the United States sent this uh, warship, the USS Maine, to sit in Havana Harbor just as kind of a warning to parties that were in conflict there that uh, Uncle Sam was watching. Uh, And then one night in the spring of 1898, that ship exploded and over 200 Americans were killed. So this caused a huge outrage in the United States, and uh, William Randolph Hearst, the publisher of uh, the New York Journal, who was uh, trying to get the United States into the war as a way to increase circulation for his newspaper, uh, published a fantastically mendacious front page. It's a classic in the history of American journalism. It has about 10 or 15 headlines on the top of the front page, and the the top one says, Thinking of the Maine was the work of an enemy. (laughs) And the front page is dominated by a drawing uh, that shows the Maine at anchor, and there you can see where the depth charges have been attached to the Maine's hull underneath the water line, and you can see the cables leading to the shore under the water, where the Spanish uh, bombardiers could plunge, push the plunger and blow up the ship. So this led to a frenzy in uh, Washington. Um, people like Roosevelt uh, were eager to dismiss any suggestion that uh, it could be anything other than a Spanish attack, even though several experts were saying in Washington that there's no torpedo or bomb known to humanity (laughs) that could cause that kind of destruction so suddenly on on a naval vessel. And there had been several cases in the last few years of smaller ships blowing up because uh, the powder magazine uh, and uh, shell storage areas were too close to the boiler and they were ignited by sparks. But all of this was ignored in the war frenzy. So that's the lesson. Uh, it shows you that uh, inconvenient facts are always pushed aside when uh, power wants to take us to war. It's a great example of why you should be suspicious of all these stories that seem so neatly to incriminate the people that we've already been taught to hate. And it's a real object lesson in uh, how easy it is to set people's emotions on fire and send whole nations to war on exaggeration. You're absolutely right that the U.S. Navy finally, 70 years later, convened a board of inquiry into what really happened to the Maine. And it was Admiral Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear navy, who 
shared that inquiry, and sure enough, they came up with what exactly the guy from the Naval Academy had said at the time, that it was a spark on board the ship. Uh, but, of course, by then the damage is done, and uh, the best we can do is learn the lesson. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel here, and, 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 and I want to hear uh, if you have if you have a comment. Uh, yesterday on program, usually I usually my programs are just Wednesday at five o'clock, but uh, but but yesterday so yesterday I brought on uh, uh, Ellen Brown, and um, Ellen Brown, a former Cal- uh, uh, candidate for uh, treasurer for the state of California, um, she um, she actually started um, she's got her JD and she started trying to support alternative medicines, um, and and then she. Kind Kind of followed the money trail, and then she got into uh, uh, a guy named Eustace Mullins and uh, in the Federal Reserve, and, and so uh, what she tried to do is train change some of the the banking in her in her state there in California, and she came up with something called the banking uh, the public excuse me the public banking institute, and and she draws a model from the state of North Dakota. And uh, through some of my preparation uh, to to speak with you, Stephen, I found I found an itch, interesting um, kind of uh, angle of a uh, a, a, a senator uh, uh, from uh, North Dakota. Um, uh, Ger- uh, in my writing, I can't get my writing, but uh, his name is Gerald, and he's and he's and he basically um, he basically is is tying in um, the uh, involvement. Uh, uh, the U.S. involvement in World War One um, with having commercial interests. Um, were you aware of, uh, of 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 this senator from North Dakota making such a statement uh, regarding World War One? Absolutely, there was a movement uh, before World War One uh, trying to keep the United States from entering that conflict, and uh, there certainly was pressure from. American financial interests, among others, to get involved. Um, and we're still debating World War One. Did we do the right thing to become involved? Uh, World War One is really the founding tragedy of our age. Without World War One, there's no Hitler, no Holocaust, no Nazis. Without World War One, there's no Bolshevik Revolution, no communism in Russia. So uh, did the U.S. entry into that war result in such an unjust and one-sided settlement uh, that it later laid the seeds for everything that came afterward? Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful question, and uh, I think it opens up this larger issue of uh, the long-term effects of American intervention. Uh, the World War I case is filled with many different overlays, but so many of the uh, unilateral American interventions into the affairs of other countries have wound up uh, pro- producing the desired result in the short run, but over the long run, not only harming the target country, but actually weakening the security of the United States. Nonetheless, we don't seem to learn from these failed interventions. We can't seem to resist the temptation that whenever there's a conflict somewhere in the world, we have to plunge in. And now we find ourselves in these conflicts like in Syria and Afghanistan, where we acknowledge, even our generals acknowledge, that uh, there's no victory possible, nothing in sight. But yet the wars grind on and on. Uh, When I mentioned this to a guy in Washington not so long ago, I gave him kind of a rant, and I ended by saying, but despite all this, Washington pursues this policy of permanent war. And he said, uh, but, you know, we don't call it permanent war here. We call it global leadership. 
<laughs> Global that's leadership. The attitude. That's the attitude that leads us into all these conflicts. We have to be the leader. Right. So how do you see, you've been, uh, you've been a writer and journalist, uh, an investigator, uh, a teacher. You, you've, been, you've been doing what you're doing for, for, for many decades. How do you see the state of, uh, let's just say, journalism uh, from when you first entered um, and where it is now? It's changed quite a bit. Uh, as a longtime foreign correspondent, I can't help but lament the passing of old days when uh, I could call my boss in New York and say, uh, I'm going off to Uzbekistan for two weeks, and there's no story, but I'll find something interesting to write. And he would say, sure, go ahead and take a photographer. <laughs> I don't think that happens too much anymore. Um, and I lament that because I don't think there's enough reporting on places where breaking news is not happening. Um, naturally, the larger news organizations have reduced their coverage, in many cases ended their coverage of uh, international news from their own sources. Uh, but I also see some quite positive things about uh, changes in journalism. First of all, although the way that news is being delivered is changing quite rapidly and will continue to change in ways that we can't even predict. I don't think they're ever going to be able to replace the journalist. I mean, no matter how sure. computerized you get, yet, there's still going to need to be somebody to go out and get the news. Yeah. Uh, so I also see that since news is coming from more sources, more people can go out and get it. You don't have to, uh, as you did when I was starting out in, uh, in the last century, uh, persuade some newspaper or some editor that you're going to be good and they should take a chance on you and give you one of their few slots. Now you can go out and prove yourself. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of uh, young journalists are trying to do that. So I do think that uh, we're in a good period for journalism. Uh, and... Uh, the tools available to journalists now for journalistic research are so much wider and uh, more productive than uh, what used to be available in the typewriter era. So, uh, yeah, I do think that uh, the future for international journalism is very positive. We, we have to find ways, uh, a, a broader number of ways to finance it, but I still see there being an appetite for international news, and certainly an appetite for uh, young journalists to go out and start uh, learning uh, how to gather it. Stephen, you wrote a book in regards to the Dulles brothers. Uh, do you find any weaving or overlapping from the work you did on their involvement, in, or as you state in the title of the book, uh, their secret world war, into what you've researched and found from Mark Twain and Theodore Roosevelt and what Carl Schurz calls as the true flag. Is there any kind of overlap between those two works? I would posit the history of American expansion as coming in three phases. Well, the first phase was filling up North America. That was what we were told was our manifest destiny, to, to spread from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And by the end of the 19th century, after 
taking one-third of Mexico and suppressing Native peoples. Yeah. We had accomplished that. So that you might call continental empire. We achieved that by the end of the 19th century. Then we had this question, what do we do now? So you could argue Americans have been expanding ever since the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth. Sure. Uh, so do we stop now that we've got to California, now that we've filled up North America? Uh, or shall we continue going and uh, jump to the Philippines and Cuba and start to become uh, an overseas power? That was the debate. That's the subject of uh, my book, my new book, The True Flag. And that's the one that Teddy Roosevelt and Mark Twain were involved with. That was the question of whether the U.S. should go from being a continental empire to being an overseas empire. And, of course, the, the Teddy Roosevelt side, the side that wanted us to do that, triumphed day one. And we wound up making that transition right around 1900 from being a, a continental empire to being an overseas empire. Now you fast forward another half a century to the Dulles brothers in the period after the Second World War, the 1950s. So John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State, and his brother Alan Dulles was head of the CIA. They are the subjects of this other book I wrote called The Brothers. Uh, now in their era, they were making a similar transition. When they came into power, and when they rose to, through, through the ranks of government, the United States was in this period of overseas empire. So we owned the Philippines. Uh, we owned Puerto Rico. We owned Guam. We were starting to project our power like that. But the Dulles brothers and, and, and Eisenhower pre presided, along with Truman, in the period right after the Second World War, over the next transition, which was the transition from overseas empire to global empire. It was then that the United States decided we not only have uh, an interest in shaping the fate of some islands and countries uh, in seas that are adjacent to us, we're going to do this to every country. We, we want to have influence everywhere in the world. So, yes, I think there is a similarity. Roosevelt and Mark Twain were arguing over that first debate. Should the U.S. go from being an empire inside North America to going outside North America? And then 50 years later, during the 1950s, the Dulles brothers were involved in getting us to the next stage where we're still in. And that's the stage of thinking that we have vital interests everywhere in the world, a belief that has led us into interventions and conflicts endlessly. So when the pilgrims left, I think, I believe it's Dartmouth, uh, southeast, or excuse me, southwest uh, tip of, uh, of, of England, I don't think they set out thinking that they would uh, develop this massive global dominant empire with the largest military ever amassed. Um, and that thought coincides with what you say in that uh, the United States didn't is excuse me, the United States is an accidental empire. Uh, if you agree with that, why is it? Why why is that? That they're an the accident. Pilgrim, the, the, the original uh, Pilgrim Fathers, uh, you're right, uh, never could have imagined anything <laughs> like this. There's the famous sermon by uh, John Winthrop uh, in 1630. He says, uh, speaking about the group of Europeans now establishing themselves uh, in Boston, we shall be as a city upon a hill, and the eyes of all people are upon us. 
Now, we're still arguing about what he meant. So did he mean that we are going to go out into an ungodly world and we're going to redeem it, we're going to make it right? Yeah. Or <laughs> did he mean the opposite? We are going to build our virtuous society at home and not bother anyone else, and because our society is good, others will emulate it if they want. So one is the idea of intervention and uh, imperial power and global leadership. Um, the other would be the power, the more prudent and restrained view of American power. So uh, this debate is still going on. Um, other countries, for, large, for largely commercial reasons, plotted out their imperial expansion. That's what the Dutch did when they established their first East India Company, and the British, and the Spanish, and the French, and the Belgians. Um, the United States uh, found itself, essentially by accident, uh, controlling this place called the Philippines, which we knew nothing about, and then we had to make it a decision. We were caught up in the frenzy of conquest and victory, and uh, the moment was such uh, was so captivating that uh, the United States, after an intense debate, decided uh, that, that we would pursue this course. But uh, that's what I mean by saying it was an accidental empire. It wasn't plotted out. Had the Spanish fleet been somewhere else, like in Spain or in Cuba, uh, we never would have dreamed of taking the Philippines. That had nothing to do with the Spanish-American War. It was all about Cuba. So that just uh, floated into our uh, lens by accident. One thing led to another, and we woke up in a very short time, uh, in, in the space of less than a couple of months, uh, with uh, a chain of colonies stretching from the east. Uh, from East Asia to the Caribbean. Yeah, I recently went down uh, to a place called the Dry Tortugas, uh, which is about 90 miles uh, to the uh, west uh, of Key West. And it's uh, dry because there's no fresh water. Uh, the, the British had uh, put it on the map as uh, being uh, you know, uh, dry Tortugas. But uh, there, uh, the uh, Fort Jefferson was amassed uh, starting, I think, in the 1810s uh, to just uh, build this massive kind of uh, fortress that, that has uh, over 500 cannons and, and could, could basically wipe out any approaching uh, armada. And, uh, and I think, you know, there's, there, I think there's some Mark Twain, uh, Mississippi River um, uh, issues going on here. And, 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 but, 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 but historically, I find that uh, very interesting. Um, Bringing things today, so so you are proud Americans. We love our country. We've got a wonderfully powerful country, and it's a it's a very strong economy. We've got such great, you know, the inventions, the telephone, the TV. We've got the internet. We've got great schools. We're a very very fortunate um, uh, 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 country and, and persons, but yet we've got such divide and we've got such turmoil uh, you know, regardless of the side uh, Trump Clinton uh, Obama Bush you know uh, uh, Gore you know we've got such um, uh, 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 turmoil really and and it even it even trickles down to um, you know some of our beloved entertainment figures like uh, Kaepernick you know taking a knee and not wanting to support and salute the flag what are your comments on in regards to that 
Mark Twain really would have had a field day with this kind of a situation because he too was being accused of being unpatriotic. Uh, he uh, had a famous moment when uh, he was asked to be one of the Toastmasters at a dinner for Winston Churchill. Twain uh, was a great raconteur, so he was always being asked to give a little after-dinner speeches. And all the previous... Uh, uh, Toastmasters had talked about the great friendship and the kinship between uh, Britain and the United States, and that's why it was so wonderful to have Churchill among them. And Twain got up and said, uh, I've been hearing all this talk about the kinship between our countries. I see the way Britain treats the natives and the Boers in South Africa. And I've seen the way the United States treats the natives in the Philippines. And so I truly can say we are kin in sin. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that set people on fire and people jumped up to protest. Mark Twain made another speech that got people angry when he said that uh, Americans that were fighting in foreign wars were carrying a polluted musket <laughs> under a bandit's flag. And people were jumping up saying, that is an honorable flag, sir, not a <laughs> bandit's flag. Uh, so you always see the people uh, criticizing a war while it's underway uh, being demonized as unpatriotic. And uh, there's a certain uh, momentum that does carry people away. You begin to think that... Uh, uh, you're undermining uh, your own uh, c comrade if you criticize any war in which the United States is engaged. And that's why during the Vietnam War, people used to say that if you really wanted to support your soldiers, you'd bring them home. Well, uh, Stephen, uh, what, a, what a wonderful discussion. Thanks for coming on the program. In a, in a, in a final few moments, if you would... Um, this seems like such a wonderful masterpiece that you've crafted for us here, and um, there's so much we can we can gain and, uh, and and use in our everyday lives. But what what are your what are your closing comments? What 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 would you like listeners to to go away with? Um, you know, whether it's one way or the other. The fact of the matter is. Um, the notion of manifest destiny, whatever it may be, we've got we've got a great spirit in in this country, and uh, and, and 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 anyway, anyway, with with uh, how, what are your closing comments? What would you like listeners to walk away with? Ever since the, the period that I wrote my book about, about the period of around 1900, the United States has been lured by this temptation to get involved in foreign conflict. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as, uh, in the words of Madeleine Albright, uh, the indispensable nation. We stand taller and we see further than other countries. Uh, many ways we think that we know what's good for the world better than the world itself knows. So with this kind of arrogance, we project ourselves into conflicts that we really don't understand and that over the long run are not good for us. So I'd like to see the United States take a more restrained view and not believe that we have vital interests everywhere. Don't feel that we need to jump into every conflict. Let's try to be a little more restrained, a little less uh, promiscuous, 
not be getting ourselves involved in wars that go on forever. It's not the natural state of countries to be at war all the time. We're falling into that state. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be looking for ways to extricate ourselves from our foreign military conflict, not ways to find new ones and intensify the ones in which we're already involved. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining Winwood Radio. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Please keep up the wonderful and great work that, that you do. I'll be back in touch after the next book. <laughs> okay. Bye. Okay, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Kinzer. Wow. I mean, that was awesome. If what I'm doing echoes and reverberates, I want to make a statement, and that is that we can learn great things from history. And I think that one can gather as much from Stephen's closing comments. Look, debate is great. You've got Mark Twain, who, like Kinzer said, he's just this happy, curly-haired guy swinging on his, rocking on his porch, smoking his cigar. That's kind of the image that I think most Americans have of Mark Twain. Certainly one that I had as well. I shared that with Stephen. Yet, whoa. He's got these real nasty comments. And as for the flag for the Philippine province, it is easily managed. We can have just our usual flag with the white stripes painted black and the stars replaced by the skull and crossbones. (laughs) I had no idea that Mark Twain had written such a thing. I mean, he attacked... Theodore Roosevelt. That is healthy. That is healthy for any republic, any civilization, government with democratic values. I'll be right back to close out the show. Thanks for joining Winwood Radio. This has been Discussions. I'm your host, Ian Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. I'll be back after a short break.
Radio. ¿Oí, Jenny? ¿Se oye ya? A ver, vamos a ver. Wingwood Radio, la mejor emisora de Wingwood en la Florida. Kill 'em all, Metallica. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's stuff I used to listen to when I uh, rode around on my skateboard in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, good stuff, you know. Yeah, you, you look at the lyrics of uh, artists like that. It's you know, it, it, most genres of music. It's it's about overcoming suppression. It's about building one's community up. Uh, you know, some people. Uh, do it in one way or the other, but uh, that's really what it's about, is about the uh, life struggle that we all can identify with. And so Metallica's uh, lyrics, uh, hey, uh, that's actually uh, some music there from the Four Horsemen, but uh, my introduction is from Seek and Destroy. So, uh, you know, I like that. Next week, Smash, as I mentioned, uh, Adrian Madrid. We're going to bring it local to a local movement here in Miami. And, uh, and they are, again, they're aiming at holding slumlords more accountable. Wouldn't that be nice uh, if uh, that is success- successful? Now, after Kevin Shipp, former CIA whistleblower. I use that term just because it's uh, common. Uh, I didn't really care to understand what it, uh, what it means. I mean, I know what it means, but uh, well, it's used. After, after uh, Kevin Shipp on the 21st, uh, we will actually close out the month. That is March 28th with uh, Paul Craig Roberts. If you're not familiar with who Paul Craig Roberts is, he's a former United States Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy. And again, uh, he served under the Reagan administrations, like uh, Charlotte Eisenberg, who was on uh, last week. Okay, uh, he's going to talk about one of his books, and that was uh, we're going to go in the 9/11 angle again. How America was lost from 9/11 to the police warfare state. So some pretty intense uh, in, in analysis at uh, at the uh, economic policies, uh, former and uh, most likely current uh, of the United States. Now, uh, Paul uh, is a PhD. He got his PhD from the University of Virginia, and he's a former fellow. Uh, possibly current, uh, uh, but certainly a fellow of economics uh, at the University of Oxford. So we'll close out the month with uh, Paul Craig Roberts. Now, I want to close out my show with um, uh, with a uh, with a, uh, a, a snippet from uh, that Carl Schurz uh, speech um, that uh, serves. Pardon me. Serves as a catalyst, if that's appropriate use of the term, uh, for uh, Stephen's book, uh, The True Flag. Um, the snippet from the speech, again, it was delivered to the University of Chicago, uh, says, No, we cannot expect that the Puerto Ricans, the Cubans, the Filipinos will maintain orderly governments in Anglo-Saxon fashion. Now, uh, I'm going to segue because uh, coming from uh, San Francisco, very diverse. Very, uh, I wasn't privy to a term until I had arrived in South Carolina, and uh, that was prior to my, uh, my arrival here in, in Miami about five years ago. Uh, the term is a WASP. 
I wasn't familiar with that what that term was. But uh, anyway, so uh, if you're not sure what that is, uh, you can write me. I, mean, I can't explain it. Anyway, uh, but it has to do with Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, ethnicity. I think it's the right, right, right angle to uh, conclude that out. Okay, so the quote continues by Carl. Uh, but they may succeed in establishing a tolerable order of things in their fashion. As Mexico. Ever been to Mexico? I love Mexico. Mexico is like, it's got so many treasures. I just love that country. I love the food. I love the culture. I love the people. I love Mexico. Um, But that's because I lived there for a couple years, and I understood what they they were all about. Prior to that, I didn't have the appreciation for it. Hmm. Stephen asked that we be all more tolerable, and certainly from a government standpoint, not quick to action. There's things we can learn and appreciate. From other cultures and, and okay, fine, broaden it into civilization, civilizations. The quote ends with after many decades of turbulent disorder, succeeded at a government, excuse me, succeeded at last under Porfirio Diaz, this is Mexico, and having a strong and orderly government of her kind, not indeed such a government as we would tolerate in this union, but a government answering Mexican character and interests and respectable in its relations with the outside world. Beautifully worded. As every civilization, and you look at the turmoil that's going on in Venezuela, my heart goes out to it. Um, I do car sharing, so I speak in Miami, so I... I, I'm always giving rides, a lift, and whatever. I, I, I'm always finding people from other countries. And in Miami, it's uh, Argentina, Argentina, Brazil. And these people are coming here because their governments are corrupt and falling apart, and they have to drive in cars that are bulletproof. I mean, they're driving cars to the grocery store and to work in bulletproof glass. This is the life that some of these other people are living in these other countries. Anyway, uh, we venture forth, being the best we can be, and, uh, and, and, and being, being that beacon. We have that beacon here in the United States. I, 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 I believe so, firmly. We've got to make sure we continue having that light of freedom and justice and liberty for all. And uh, I thank you for listening. Uh, until next week with Smash... Uh, I have been your host for the weekly program discussions. Uh, you're tuned into Winwood Radio, and I leave you with this phrase. Folks, be awesome.